0: Hi, I'm Carol Sanford. I'm the host of the Responsible Capitalist podcast, where we help you align the money you invest with the meaning in your life. Each time I talk with you a bit about a question that's being asked in the investment community, in the community of the Responsible Capitalist, and then we interview a person who is doing extraordinary and cutting edge work in that field. Today I'd like to speak with you just briefly about an idea that comes up continuously and our first guest will talk about that. That is the idea of externalized cost. Now what externalized cost means are all of those costs which the company creates as a loss but not to itself, as a loss to the ecological system, to society, but they don't pay for that. They don't embed it in the cost of the product. And so when you and I buy a product, we are not paying for all of the cost that is incurred in the making of that product or service. This is a question that I increasingly am asking impact investors How are you able to assess this externalized version of cost and how would you coach and mentor people to bring it back inside? So there are two things that I think are very helpful to getting externalized cost up in the conversation because most of this is about getting people to talk about it because you may not figure out immediately how to do it all but the fact that you don't know how to do it all obviously often leaves us not even having the conversation. Two questions, the first is, how we make the product imbued with that question being more overt. So the first question that I always ask companies to start with is, who is buying your product? Who is benefiting from your product in its use? They are a user, consumer, a customer. And how are you making their lives more whole and well-lived? Now, if you ask about the customer, the consumer in a whole way, you're not just looking at them using your product, but you're u- looking at them in how they live in the world, how their family lives, how it is that they are healthy and vital. And you have to ask do your products actually make them healthy and whole long term? We often think of the waste, the byproduct waste, as something that's in the supply chain but it's often also in the effect that it has on people's lives. So if I'm living in a world where I or my children are exposed to toxins or to, including like pesticides into smoke-filled air, especially if I'm traveling to an arena which is heavily industrialized, then I am not asking the question, how is it I am affecting the lives, the whole lives, the well-lived lives of the customer? What is the cost of this product? So I know that there are many companies that are still working on improving their products and getting them so that they are always, all the way to what they would call 100% responsible, where they have no negative side effects of packaging, none of uh, breakdown of the product after the consumer is done with it, uh, and also nothing in the air that is, or water that is left behind. But the more this conversation comes up in product development, the more likely we are to start internalizing those costs. The second arena that I invite an investor and therefore the entrepreneur that they're funding to look at is what I call a value-adding process view of investing and production. So value-adding process is very different than a value-added process, which we've talked about before. The idea that I'm trying to get across here is a visual one where you're really mapping what happens from earth to earth in the creation of a product and asking it every step along the way how it is adding value to the people who will use it, just as I just said, and where is it losing value and externalizing costs all the way along. Now, I'm suggesting something different than just creating a list of all of the places where you need to reduce waste or change product substitution, because it doesn't actually change our ability to ensure that we're whole. And one of the things that I believe that impact investors want is to increasingly be able to know that there are no cost and decreasingly no cost externalized to the product. So the visualization of imaging a product starting with when it's pulled from the ground, when the resources of Earth are loaned to us in order to make something. And we ask every, in every step, including that one, how is it we ensure Earth can renew, restore, and regenerate itself? How does that happen when it moves to the first people who convert and make changes to that material that we're going to use? I was just looking at cabinetry here in the production studio and looking at how amazing it is to think about that the way we treat wood that we've taken down is a way of repaying back earth and not externalizing the cost of leaving behind an unhealthy earth from taking down just a few trees that we love. Moving along into how we manufacture and then again out into the life, if you image that as a flow starting with the material and how it comes out, but the most important thing is how it affects the well-lived life of the consumer and then all the other stakeholders who are there. If we can embed that in the conversations, we're starting the, um, the ability to make decisions that would prevent us from externalizing costs. Now, I have a guest with me today, Uh, Tim Frondlich, who is pretty amazing in terms of what he's doing with all kinds of investing. I'm going to have him introduce himself, but I have a lot of questions you're going to love his answers to about how you think about this idea of making sure that the investment you have is really one that is whole with who you are and whole with the world that we live in. Hi, Tim. I'm so glad to have you with us. Can we start by having you introduce yourself? You know, not only your name, but a little bit of what you do and what you're up to right now that really matters. Then we'll go back a bit and look at how you got to where you are. But let's just get grounded in who you are and what you're up to.
1: Sure. Uh, uh, thanks, Carol. I'm Tim Freundlich, I'm the president and co founder of Impact Assets which is an, an NGO uh, impact investing firm um, in the United States, and also a co-founder and president and treasurer of the board of the Impact Hub Network in, uh, in a few markets in the United States. And, uh, and uh, that's my primary set of affiliations, along with a small venture fund called Good Capital.
0: A small venture fund. Those are big deals. <laughs> okay, that's great. Let's, uh, let's just start with How you differentiate, uh, and I loved reading and looking at all the links, which I'll make sure I post that you sent me, I'll post for others to look at. But uh, let's start with how you differentiate where along that continuum that people are investing, everything from philanthropy, as you said, to market rate, where do you put impact investing and why do you call it impact investing and how do you know that's where you are versus somewhere
1: else? Yeah, I mean, impact investing is is i'd say the freshest uh most recent vernacular uh kicking around in our culture to describe the integration of values in investing decisions uh i personally don't think of it as a category or a sector or or an asset class uh as have been posited on occasion in certain reports and uh and um publications but rather that of a lens. So um, impact for me uh, as it relates to investment is having a theory of change, a point of view about the world and wanting to extend it through your asset base. Um, And really nothing more than that. And it could be quite variable. The point is a proactive point of view, uh, a thesis, if you will, or a set of hypotheses that you want to apply Across your investable asset base, um, you could extend that and say lots of people like to extend that across their consumer, their consumption base, their con- consumerism, what they buy, what they put in their bodies, the way that they purchase cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, other people apply it to their vocation, uh, their their um, their work and the kinds of work that they do. You could do it with all of them. <laughs> you know, one would argue a whole person would. Uh, so, impact investing is is not a subset of social investing or ESG, environmental social governance investing, or whatever you want to call it. It is it is really just an approach, in my opinion. Um, and I think those that I work closely with as a practitioner, um, it is just an expression of a personal value set applied to uh, investable assets across the board. And that could be um, picking up where philanthropy stops and going all the way through concessionary and near market rate to full market rate investing. It could be private debt and equity, sort of the venture world. It could be loans to nonprofits. It could be applied to stocks and bonds and mutual funds There's and real estate investing and natural resources. It, it is not a subsegment. It is a point of view.
0: I love that. That was what I was trying to do with this recent book, The Responsible Entrepreneur. I said, I hate people calling themselves social entrepreneurs because it makes it sound like you're some subset that only a few people will be. Whether you're an entrepreneur who is really making a difference in the world, you don't want to be purely philanthropy or working in a not-for-profit and it's how you see the world. So thank you for that. That was the best description I've heard of impact investing uh, so far. Uh, I do want to ask you a question, a couple of questions about this one piece on market rate, market rate. I mean, first title's clever, right? Uh, and there you're pointing out uh, what might be called some myths that we use that get us wrapped up in market rate. Could you talk just a little bit about how that works that we forget we're externalizing and you know, we forget that um, we're not logical, <laughs> things like that. Could you talk a little
1: more about that and how you got to that? And the problem the whole problem with this market rate idea and i think we saw this in 2008 uh with the black box meltdowns of uh, a bunch of uh technicians constructing portfolios they didn't understand that were completely disastrous and nobody who sold them understood him and nobody who bought them understood them um and uh you know the, this idea that there's some sort of i mean market market rate i guess in its simplest and truest sense just means You know, reasonable people can agree, and it will change. Their agreement will change over time on what certain assets are worth. And um, we do this across. Again, I go back to my, you know, to my previous comment on on sort of impact investing and trying to extend into consumption and vocation. I mean, we make choices in our lives all the time about how to calibrate. The returns on our time and our money, and you know, we lend money to friends and family uh, at discounts and don't think anything of it, and are able to internalize uh, potentially less return into a value proposition that holds together in a situation like when my my parents lent me my down payment for for my condo. You know, one of the first little apartment I bought, um, you know, they, they they didn't charge me a lot of interest. Uh, that doesn't mean, that, I mean, they're only one person. They don't sit there and be like, oh, well, that's, you don't need to sit there and say, oh, well, that's different than um, a bond I'm buying. It's just, it's got a different purpose and a different value proposition. And so, you know, we're making choices in the uh, we're making choices to earn a little less money in our work to be in a geographic region that provides psychic fulfillment or that, Puts us nearer to our family or our friends. Is that, you know, what what does that mean? So people are are making choices all the time that patriate into the value proposition a whole bunch of things other than quote unquote market rate risk return. So this is somewhat of a fiction we've constructed, and there's a reason for it. Uh, It's because massive capital markets don't trade on nuance so well they're very binary they need to be black and white money has moved faster and faster and faster globally there's arbitrage there's just no you know there can't be any friction any nuance any narrative component it's just gotta be ones and zeros and so what's happened is that's come of age and we've left it's a wonderful life with jimmy stewart behind is we've gotten to a point where we've crowded out what Actual a market system has always been throughout human history, which is a social contract and expression of an exchange of value and values that is actually the history of humanity, not the current. The current is the moment. It's been here since, you know, sort of growing up through the Robert baron age, and the last 100, 150 years of industrial and post-industrial, you know, where we are right now. That's fine. We can, you know, we can critique it or not critique it, but let's not mistake it for the human condition. Right. Uh, or or the way things are supposed to be. It is an expression of a set of, of um, you know, realities about becoming a global, highly connected, fast moving economy, uh, Western economy uh, in, in our in our case. So I don't know if that totally answers it, but that's kind of the, the stuff that I'm trying to get at there. And I think um very much at the kind of soul and center of of what I think brings me to the work that I've uh, been doing this last 17 years.
0: I'm out working often with impact investing firms and particularly with their clients in an uh, educational mode. And I get one, ask one question over and over again uh, that I want to ask you, but I want to give you just a tiny bit of context so you can know why it comes up. I am helping them learn to assess whether or not they're going to get a social return. So we're not right now talking about the financial return, willing to accept less. But there's the question when you're investing in an entity which says, I want to make a difference in the world. How do you assess whether or not they'll do that? You know, whether they're going to get there, whether it's just a substitute product or going to make a difference. So, you know, I'm giving them ways to do that. And I'm giving them ways to embed in their financials, their earnings margins and cash flow. So you're not externalizing things as you do business, how it is you account for that. Now, it's really weird. But in the middle of that, the most frequent question that comes up is, I don't any longer know how to personally assess return. Like I used to be an investor who made said double digits, you know, the more the better. I've as a result of that made a lot of money and I've been able to be a philanthropist over on the other side. Now people are saying to me, here what you wanna do is get a reasonable return and I don't have any criteria, even if I'm just doing it personally, much less if I'm doing it for other people's money, what do you use, Tim, because you do invest other people's money, right? You invest in other people and you must have some kind of criteria that don't give you an answer, but give you a way to think about it. Do you understand that question I'm asking?
1: Sure. I mean, it's 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 um, difficult a few different ways. I mean, you, you brought up the uh, externalization um, of of impact or returns or I mean uh, of costs uh, a couple of times. And I think there's a negative Assessment that doesn't get done and people don't know how to do, which is kind of a a further extension of the last comments I was making. The, you know, when you're not investing thoughtfully and you're investing in enterprises or, or industries or companies that are kind of willy nilly externalizing costs of doing business onto society, environmental costs, social costs, you know, this is when you're employing piecemeal labor and not giving them benefit, health benefits and forcing them onto the ER health system, as some major corporations that will go on named have been accused of doing in major media over the past few years, uh, or, or, um, or, you know, employing child labor in the developing world and ruining, you know, the fabric of education and, um, and an opportunity uh, of, of the next generation in that country, or, you know, uh, or, or, you know, forcing onto Superfund cleanups and the EPA and the tax system a whole bunch of externalized environmental, you know, toxicity. All those things we like are investing. I mean, that's the negative thing people don't talk about. That it's like we don't know how to assess that and incorporate. If you do that, it's like your investment in XYZ Corporation. You you you're making eleven percent, but when you fund in the fully loaded cost to society, to your taxes, to the lack of quality in your education and health system um you're actually a negative your 11 percent return on average turns into negative six yeah but we don't know how to do that so i mean it doesn't even just like on the proactive positive side now i'll get to that on the positive side we employ a number of um uh both uh, uh kind of across the board routines and then uh i think fundamentally the answer is very much you have to design it around the deal or around the thesis or around the, uh, the very specifics, just as I think you would, if you are making a grant to a nonprofit and trying to hold it accountable, you got to, you know, you've got some sort of general category thesi around like, what does it mean to take a kid out of poverty? Like in the macro, you can be like, okay, that's good. But then you get down to It's like, well, is this the good nonprofit? And you're just like, well, how many kids are they taking out of poverty and what's the quality of that taking out? The delta of the addition of my grant money and people of course don't really do a good job of this generally even foundations with institutionalized staff and, and thesis management but that said um, it's that kind of a thing you have to apply that and then you look for overarching so if overarching we we do um, look at especially with fund managers with um impact fund managers uh that they're employing things like b corp uh ratings for for-profit companies
0: so as I attend conferences like SOCAP, which you're a major player and um, creator in, I notice an increasing number of people who are having this conversation. And I also, because I'm in New York with financial institutions, I notice it moving strongly uh, as a part of a conversation. I think a little of it is still we have to look like we're doing this and maybe even a small amount is the patriarchal layer. But there does seem to be a genuine opening of this conversation first i'm wondering if you see that and if you do what do you think is moving that and what else would we do to move it that conversation further
1: so i'm i'm very optimistic and and uh and i'm seeing a great deal of acceleration in the adoption curve it's just you know you tech if you look at consumer adoption in the tech uh industry you you sort of the first big time the, the time segments are all about the same but the first Time segment is 1%. The next time segment is goes from one to four, so 3%. The next one is seven. And then it goes from, like, that adds up to, you're up to about 11% then. Then the next one goes up to, like, 34. And then it tops off, and then it sort of tails down. I mean, we're, like, we've left the one. We're in the one to four, zero to one. You know, we're right at the very front end of this. And so I think we have to kind of have temper our hyperbole and our patience levels to be in a cadence of a multi-generational and multi-decade migration of the interpretation of what values and value means within an investment context. It is not going to be done with the millennials, much less in the next three to five years. It's going to be you know, tens of years, and this has been going on for tens of years, since the Quakers started doing uh, incorporating social Ideals with their investments overtly you know decades ago calvert and has been Calvert group, you know the largest family of socially responsible mutual funds where I started my career uh back in d c they've been doing this for thirty five years well thirty three you know more than thirty you know this is not new, but it is it is rapidly accelerating through an adoption curve that seems to be in multiples. So now it's on people's radar, whereas it was really ghettoized or really fringe, you know, 10 and 20 years ago.
0: So you, you've you hinted at some things that I find myself researching and very curious about, which are points in history that have moved and changed things. I mean, we went from, you know, royalty to a mercantilism to, and then we dropped the industrial revolution in way down the line. Where'd, how, could you give a, I don't know, a five-minute overview of how you see the change in points in history that uh, have gotten us to where we are now? I, that's a ridiculous question, but I'm really curious about uh, how you.
1: You're, I mean, I'm I'm uh, flattered that you think I might have an answer to such uh, uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, uh and perfect knowledge sorts of questions. But uh, I mean, I, I would make a couple comments uh, to try to approach the essence of what you're getting at in the way that I approach it uh, or, or sort of daylight the way I'm thinking about it. But I, but I do not have a cogent, well thought out treatise for you um, because I, I don't have uh, two too heads down and uh, being a practitioner, I'm not very academic. But that said, um, the things I think that matter, uh, one is Joe Stiglitz is uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winning economist uh, uh, if anybody wants to read a good uh, progressive tax reform white paper, it's only about 30 pages. The Roosevelt Institute put it out in June. It's his most recent thinking. Um, but, you know, his his sort of, uh, his point of view right now is this is about a social contract or lack thereof. There have been key points in history, and we're in one of them right now. O8 oh, did not address it or really reflect it. We are in it right now. And those were the end of the robber baron. You know, period in the late 1800s, um, the you know the late 20s and the and the Great Depression and right now Uh, and stretching of the social contract and the metrics on wealth and income gaps in society in those cases in this country all look about the same and it is untenable and it will change increment you know through evolution or revolution and it always does throughout human history let's hope. It isn't the one where the um, top one percent or five percent is dragged out into the streets uh, with riots and beheadings. So, so there's there's that point of view, and his solution is uh, a multi-point uh, progressive tax reform. And um, he says there's a high correlation between these points in history and a lack of progressive tax taxation of the wealthy, which then compounds uh, and an overemphasis on income tax, which unduly hits the poor because or the middle of the country because they spend everything they earn right. also known as, you know i mean it's sort of like sorry sales and you know sort of that kind of tax as opposed to wealth taxes which are you know wealthy just accumulating more and more and more wealth and not really paying much tax on it so so anyway there's there's that kind of context i think we are also in a post um uh i mean this climate change thing is big and um, we are moving from uh, industrial, you know, sort of a, a, a an extractive industry, sort of fossil fuel reality, to one that cannot cannot be. It cannot be. If you look at the science, um, it cannot be. I, anybody who's interested, I, I really I recommend going to Rocky Mountain Institute and picking up some of Amory Lovins' thoughts and powerpoints on this, and TED talks. Brilliant. One of the leading um, science scientists on on sort of innovation around the post-fossil fuel economy uh, th- that I've experienced. Um, and uh, but but basically, I mean we cannot we cannot run a world on on fossil fuels going forwards without falling off a cliff in anything remotely related to current trajectory or even footprint. A, B, we cannot be sort of, I don't know, unsophisticated uh, in thinking that you can trap $46 trillion of assets. That's the rough estimate of the value of the oil in the ground, the oil and gas in the ground, that, that a status quo, that a, that a capital market system, that a society is going to abandon $46 trillion underground. It's too addictive. There's too much wealth wrapped up in it. There's too much power. So that's that's a pretty crazy situation. If you think about it, you can't use it. If you use it, you die, but you can't leave it in the ground because it's worth $46 trillion and you're addicted to it. What do you do? Amory Lovins would say you, in, you innovate. Uh, you... Uh, you you turn it into uh, positive products. Um you know that you you find ways to mitigate, and you do not abandon or as you know you can't abandon assets is the technical you know term in in, uh, in uh, for for such a thing. So you know, I think that's another big one. another big sort of macro theme that I think we all have to be really in touch with. and then the other one is this um change theory, Wait for them to die. I mean I always joke about that. It's like, what's well, your theory of change? I'm like, honestly, I'm not that interested in, in trying to morph the, the, the more mature end of the spectrum of people who are set in their ways and institutions that have been doing things. You know, I, I know that they'll I think that this this um, pretty radical demographic kind of um, difference in the way that the millennials are composed and the way they approach the integration of value and the lack of false dichotomies in their life they have other issues I mean, i'm not saying they're all great at all but generally speaking their their comfort in integrating the digital to the you know to the physical their comfort in integrating work to purpose to friends to consu- consuming things that are healthy and fair trade and uh, na- and naturally incorporating you know giving money away to nonprofits on kickstarter or indiegogo and talking about their investment capital, as they come into positions of power and wealth, there's a $42 trillion wealth transference that's gonna be done by 2040. And this will all be, and that's why I say this is a multi-decade process, but I guarantee you that the status quo will be radically different status quo when the 16 to 32 year olds have all the power and it's gonna happen and there's no stopping it because we are going to die. Right right and so you know we got these different things going on and you know some combination of those things i think means there are changes afoot and we're going to see some really i hope evolutionary uh accelerated innovation and adoption of all these ideas in the next 10 to 30 years
0: tim thank you so much i feel like every time i talk to you i learn so much It enlivens many of my ways of already thinking about something, but you make it so precise. Like I got rid of the word responsibility in many things that I've done in recent years, because it kind of pulls it out as a separate class. Just like you say, impact investing is not a separate class. It's a worldview. So thank you so much for all that you brought us today. I'm gonna put a link to uh, Social Good and uh, some of the other places people can find out more about you. I'm also, for those of you who are listening, going to add our website, carolsanford.com, where you can pick up not only this podcast, but many others of The Responsible Capitalist and those of The Responsible Entrepreneur. You can also find links there to my two award-winning books, The Responsible Business and The Responsible Entrepreneur. And I hope you join us again next time. Thank you.